Okay, good morning. I hope you guys don't mind if I sit down this morning. My lower back is really stiff and it's been bothering me. I don't think it's anything major. I'm just standing for a long time has been giving me pain. So it'll help me if I can sit down. So hopefully that's not a problem. Um, I appreciate your understanding. Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Last week we talked about verse 13. And when the sixth angel sounded its trumpet, John heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. That's that altar of incense. The souls of the martyrs of all ages were under that altar crying for God's vengeance during the fifth seal judgment. That judgment was that cry which guaranteed the wrath of God. Okay? The four horns of the altar were a place of refuge for those seeking God's mercy and protection in the Old Testament tabernacle. Some clung to it for religious or superstitious reasons, and it did not help them in that day. But that voice coming from that place indicates that what follows here is an answer or a partial answer or the beginning of God's answer to the prayers of His saints for vengeance. And then we ended by talking about how the vengeance of God, karma per se, you reap what you sow, is the patience and faith of the saints. And we'll see that specifically stated later in the book. But what is this sixth trumpet judgment? The fifth trumpet was a demonic army of locusts sent to torment men for five months. This sixth judgment is likewise, I believe, supernatural. Very likely it's invisible to the naked eye, just like um, the fifth trumpet. But it is also devilish in nature. Instead of torment, however, it involves destruction. So we're here under... Um, I don't even have a correct outline with me this morning. Mine's the first version, so I edited it, and I don't even think my letters are right. But we're under Roman numeral 2, the second woe, or the sixth trumpet judgment, which is infernal destruction. And last week we talked about the golden altar. Now let's look at verses um, 14 um, and 15. It is written here, this voice says to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. If you recall back in chapter 7, the first few verses, there are four angels which are commanded to restrain the wind from blowing and that it would be still on the earth so that God could seal His servants in their foreheads. So back in chapter 7, four angels are commanded to restrain the judgments. Here, it is commanded that four angels be unleashed to effect judgment. And it says that these angels are bound in the great river Euphrates. Okay, Nowhere in the Scriptures are holy angels spoken of as being bound. Nowhere. However, fallen angels, particularly those that were associated with the divine crimes in Genesis chapter 6, 
are spoken specifically as being bound. Now, we've looked at these Scriptures before, but let's go back there. Bob, would you go to Jude verse 6? And um, Matthew, I'll have you read 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Jude verse 6, whenever you get that, Bob. little tiny book right before Revelation. It's sometimes only on one page in the Bible, so it's easily skipped. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto judgment of the great day. Okay, we've talked about that Scripture before. I'm not going to get in it, into it in too much debt. But these angels are bound unto a day of judgment, reserved unto the day of the great judgment. Okay? 2 Peter 2 4. <clears throat> For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Okay, again, these angels are spoken of as chained or bound. Okay, if we read the context and understand the comparisons that are being made in 2 Peter and Jude between the false prophets and the angels that left their uh, first estate, we can see this is connected very clearly. To Genesis 6, when the sons of God took daughters of men and defied the creative order. And as a result, their offspring were mighty men in the earth, giants, physically, uh, physically beyond natural and spiritually supernatural to extent. I believe the spirits of those beings would be what we call demons, and the fallen angels mentioned in these passages in Jude and Revelation are angels that left, not, that left their first estate. But holy angels are not bound in Scripture. These, I believe, are fallen angels. Not demons that are unleashed in the fifth seal, but fallen angels. And not necessarily the angels that fell from heaven with Satan, but specifically, I believe, related to the ones that are bound because of the sin of Genesis 6. And it says in both those passages that they are reserved unto the judgment of the great day. Now we often believe that's a reference to their judgment. And obviously that's part of it. These angels will be judged. Paul says we will judge angels in the last days as the saints. Not in the last days, but in the judgment day. As saints, we will have a place to judge even angels. Okay, But the judgment of the great day referred to in those passages very well could be referring to what we're getting ready to read about. The judgment poured out on men in the last days. These angels are reserved unto that judgment possibility. Okay, So it says that these angels are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now when we talked about the underworld a few weeks ago and the relationship between the bottomless pit, that great gulf between what once was paradise and hell. And we talked about Gehenna, the everlasting lake of fire, which all of these things will empty into in one day. And we also talked about a place called Tartarus. The word Tartarus in Greek is what is used there in those passages that talk about these angels. And it's a holding cell for the angels that sinned and, and are bound. And so the question here is, is the Euphrates River somehow related to these bound angels and related to Tartarus? Perhaps Euphrates is somehow the doorway 
to Tartarus. I believe that the underworld or hell is in the heart of this earth. Okay, it's spoken of in that sense many times in the scriptures. Okay, we have all of our theories about what the earth is made up of in its inside. The reality is, man has never drilled below the crust of the earth, which is just a small fragment of what's there. We don't know for sure. All of that at best is educated guesses. We've even talked about uh, that many, many Sundays ago in hell. But somehow, the Euphrates River is linked to a place where fallen angels are bound, possibly Tartarus. If we go back all the way to the beginning of Scripture, we'll see that the Euphrates, which is a major river in the Middle East, even today, has been significant from the beginning of time. Okay, And it's significant all the way up until the end of time. Not just here, but it'll be mentioned later in Revelation chapter 16. So let's just look at a few passages of Scripture this morning and try to get at what is being referred to here. Okay? Ronnie, would you read um, Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14? And Jim, I'll just have you uh, be ready with Genesis 10, 8 through 10. And Daddy, I'll have you be holding fast with Genesis 11, 1 through 4. Let's go back to the beginning, okay? Revelation wraps up everything that began in Genesis. And much of what started or is referenced in Genesis comes full scale or full fruition in the book of Revelation. If you reject Genesis as literal, you have to reject Revelation as literal. You know, don't say that God made the world in indeterminate periods of time and that man is the product of theistic evolution and then claim you believe Revelation to be fulfilled in the ways we're teaching it. Impossible. It doesn't work that way. Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 14. Jim, would you, or, or, or Ronnie, would you read that, please? A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became four heads. The name of the fourth is Fishnon, that is, in which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the onyx stone, and the name of the second river is Gion, and the name of it that compasses the whole of Cush, and the name of the third river is Jekyll, and that is which goes toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. All right, I, I'm sorry, that passage of scripture was full of strange words, so Ronnie, you did a great job there. Full of strange words, <laughs> okay? Um, Garden of Eden. Okay, from Eden, there was a river that divided into four major rivers. Okay, the Pison and the Gihon. We know nothing about those rivers, they do not exist today, but the last two do, and they are major rivers even today. The third is the Hiddekel, which is the Tigris River. Okay, the Tigris River is in the Middle East, modern day Iraq. Okay, and then the fourth river that went out and parted from the land of Eden was Euphrates. Okay, in fact, there's a whole area, even in modern day Iraq today, it's a fertile area that lies between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Okay, Babylon, that great ancient city, 
was built on the Euphrates and the land surrounding it was that fertile plain of Shinar between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, if you look at a modern day map, you can see where the Tigris and the Euphrates basically come together before they empty into the Persian Gulf. However, Genesis says, and some have looked at that and said, well, Eden must be around there and those other two rivers have dried up. But this says that the, a single river or a source of those four rivers came out from Eden and parted into four. Okay, The way the rivers flow, they flow into the Persian Gulf, so it couldn't have been that meeting place. I don't think we can know where the Garden of Eden was located. I believe that much of what we see today on our planet is the result of the flood and, and the, the landscape and the geography of the earth was so uh, changed from that event, I don't think we can know. I think there's things left over, obviously the mountains of Ararat, the Euphrates, the Tigris, things like that. But everything was so changed that there were rivers that were once there that aren't there anymore. And there are ones there today that wouldn't have been there before either. Take, for instance, the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon would have been formed very quickly uh, when the fountains of the deep broke up and uh, the water carved out that great canyon. You know, if the canyon in Arizona was produced from a long, slow uh, erosion process of water, and that is the indication of age, then it would make sense to me that the Nile River, which scientists say is the oldest river in the world, would be at the bottom of the deepest canyon in the world, but it's not, okay? So, um, anyway, Euphrates was linked to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a place of perfection. It was a place of beauty. It was a place whereby God gave man stewardship over his new creation. And in a sense, it was a place of power. Okay? Even after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, what did God put at the gate of that garden to guard it? A cherubim that with a sword that turned every way to keep man from eating of the tree of life and living forever in his sinful state. In fact, um, it, it was probably the place where Cain and Abel came to make their sacrifice. Because even after sin entered the world, Eden was a place of power. And it was a place of power not only because of the, the background of what took place there and the cherubim being there, but because it was the source of four very important rivers. Now, historically, in um, pagan and, 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 and other type of thought, a place where rivers are sourced is considered a place of power. Okay? In fact, we see this in Hinduism. You may not know this, but the swastika was not designed by Hitler. Okay? It was not designed by the Nazi party. It was borrowed from ancient Hinduism. Okay. In fact, if you travel around Nepal, some of you all saw this when you were there, or India, in Hindu countries, you'll see the swastika a lot of times above people's doors. Sometimes it looks exactly like the one on a Nazi flag. Other times it's flipped, like in a mirror. But it's the swastika. And what it has is a central source with four, with four bending arms that come out of this. In Hindu thought, the swastika is a symbol of power. Okay, what you have is the center, and parting from that center are four arms. Okay, it's a reference to a place in modern day Tibet called Mount Kailash. Okay, Mount Kailash is a pilgrimage spot for Hindus, and it's believed that Shiva, the destroyer, Satan himself, lives atop Mount Kailash. 
and it's a place of great power. And in the swastika, what the four arms symbolize are the four rivers, the very important rivers in South Asia that have their source in and around Kailash. You have the Indus River, extremely important. That's what flows down that valley up in Ladakh. It's from where the British gave the name India to the subcontinent, um, or to Bharat, as it's called in the Hindi language. You've got the Sutlej River, the Brahmaputra River, and the Karnali River. You guys remember that bridge we stopped at in Nepal where we ate the fish, Bob's favorite meal when we were overseas? That's the Karnali River. Okay, that's the Karnali. That's one of the major rivers that is sourced in Mount Kailash. And because those four rivers come from that place, it's considered a place of great power. It's also associated with Hinduism and the occult. Okay, a place of power. Where the Euphrates came from that place of power, okay, and it would make sense that just as those rivers are associated with Kailash, that the Euphrates would be also associated with somewhere that was a place of power. Godly power at one time, but perhaps more related to demonic power now because of what later would rise up in the area around Babylon. I mean, around the Euphrates. So, four rivers sourced in Mount Kailash going forth is, the sor- is, is where we get the swastika from, a devilish sign of great power. And it's interesting that the Euphrates was one of four rivers that came from Eden long, long ago. Okay, And Satan always seems to counterfeit what God does. And so back from the, in the beginning of time, the Euphrates was significant. Um, Babylon, as I mentioned, was built on the Euphrates River. And in fact, men began to gather around the Euphrates in that Tigris-Euphrates uh, uh, river plain very early on. And not long after men were expelled from the garden, okay, then the flood came. Very shortly after the flood, this area became associated with rebellion against God. So you have a place of godly power become a place of rebellious power. Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Achaz, and Kalmau, Kalmau, in the land of Shinar. Okay, so here we have. Um, in Genesis chapter 10, we have the table of nations that traces the descendants of Noah's three sons. Okay? And we get down to verse 6, we begin to see the descendants of Ham. Okay? Ham's descendants were the North Africans, some of the Middle Eastern peoples, as well as the Africans, the dark Africans from the south, southern, middle and southern part of the continent. But it says here in verse 8, Cush, okay? Cush would be related somewhat to Egypt, okay, to Ethiopia, okay, that area, begat a son whose name was Nimrod, okay. Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth, all right. It doesn't really go into too much detail, but there is a lot of Jewish historic tradition that sheds light on what this means. It says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said even as Nimrod the mighty hunter, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Okay? His kingdom was Babel. And Babel means confusion. And from that 
term Babel is where we get the city's name of Babylon. And we'll see what happens in Genesis 11 where Babel is concerned. So when we read about the Tower of Babel, we know that Nimrod was associated with it. That was rebellion against God. And it talks about Erech and Akkad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Okay? Shinar is the land of Babylon, modern-day Iraq, bordering on the Euphrates River. So Shinar, where Nimrod's kingdom began, was right there at the Euphrates. Okay? Um, now Nimrod, I mean Cush, Nimrod's father, married a woman. She was considered one of the most beautiful women in all the world. Her name was Semiramis. And Cush began to be very wicked, and she was more like a Jezebel figure, and encouraged him unto this wickedness and rebellion against God. Well, when Shem found out about what was going on, uh, he had Cush killed. And there are some stories that say to make a statement, um, Cush was chopped up and pieces of him were passed around to the men of the times to warn them about judgment against those that would worship idols and rebel against God. What's wrong with you people? God just wiped out this planet with a flood and now you're going to follow somebody like this. You need to be warned. Some of this is Jewish tradition and I'm not sure it can exactly be proven and it's not written about in the scriptures. But what happened when Cush was killed, they had a son, Nimrod. His mother, Semiramis, uh, decided to deceive the people. And it was basically the seeds of Babylonian paganism, which, much of which remains in Roman Catholic doctrine today. Long story short, she married her son. And from this relationship came this mother-son, you know, mother of God, God the human child imagery that we see in so many false religions as well as in Catholicism today. She was a wicked woman. Uh, she introduced lots of pagan principles and she used the death of her husband as a means to further deceive the people and to convince them that this son Nimrod was actually a god. And so he was a powerful man and he had a powerful following. And so the seeds of Babylonian paganism go all the way back to Nimrod and his mother. And I'm not going into all the details today. There's no point. Um, there are some great uh, references if you want to study more about that. There's a book by Alexander Hislop. I believe it's from the 1800s called The Two Babylons. It's very hard to find. I know Chick Publications still prints it. But it's a great read, very difficult. And it traces a lot of Roman Catholic doctrine back to Babylonian days and speaks of these things that I'm mentioning now. So, Nimrod's kingdom, Babylonian paganism has its roots there on the banks of the Euphrates River. And then Genesis 11, 1 through 4, we of course know this story very well. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Here we have the origins of humanism as well. We have the origins of the thought that there is no God, or if there is a God, He's insignificant. We are humanity. We are one, and if we come together in unity, 
There's nothing that can stop us. This goes back to Babel. Okay? Nimrod would have been instrumental in uh, uh, propagating this mentality and overseeing the building of this tower. And men attempted to build a tower unto heaven. Now we often think that in these days men were like cavemen and they were crude structures and there was probably nothing very fascinating about this tower and it probably didn't get very high. And that's foolishness, okay? When we go and look at archaeology in the ancient Middle East, I mean, Ricky and I will have a chance to see some of this stuff. Men were not dummies. In fact, everything we have today is built on the foundations of those that worked and labored with nothing, okay? And so these men weren't fools, and this probably was a very, very great tower. Uh, perhaps even more magnificent than the pyramids, which even today, we cannot understand how these were built. And some people claim there must have been a supernatural element because I don't know how these stones were perfectly carved and lifted up as they were. But this was a mighty tower built by civilized people that honestly believed they could overthrow God and reach to heaven just as Satan attempted to ascend the throne of God. And so undoubtedly this was promoted by him himself right there in the plain of Shinar on the banks of the Euphrates River. Babel means confusion. Of course, it goes on to tell us what happens after that. The Lord came down to see the city and that the men in the tower that they build. And this is what he said, Behold, the people is one and they all have one language. And this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language. Let us go down, the plurality of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, communing with themselves, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. Now, over in Iraq today is a great, huge foundation that dates back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And there was an inscription on that tower, on that foundation, put there by Nebuchadnezzar that called it the Tower of Borsippa, which in the language means the tongue tower. So there's evidence that east, at least as far back as Nebuchadnezzar, this foundation was associated with what remained from that tower. So that's archaeology right there showing the Word of God to be true. Unlike the Book of Mormon, which claims all of these things in North America, there was supposedly a place in upstate New York where there was a battle that involved millions of people. But yet there's never been a weapon found buried in the earth. There's never been an evidence of encampments. You can go to Israel today to the place called Masada where the, the Jews held out against the Romans for days. And eventually the party up there committed suicide to keep from being uh, killed by the Romans. But you can still tell by looking at the landscape to, you know, almost, you know, a little less than 2,000 years later that there was a Roman encampment there. You can tell where the Romans were camping. It affected and scarred the landscape. And so the Romans weren't millions of soldiers. They were in thousands. And so if there were millions of people fighting in upstate New York, you would think there would be some uh, record of that, which they're not. The Book of Mormon is a farce. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a hoax. Okay, But not here. 
Archaeology always has proven the Bible to be true. But we see this Euphrates River associated not just with the Garden of Eden, a place of great power, divine power, a place from which man was banned because of his rebellion, but we see it as a place associated with men known for their, their rebellion against God going back to the first days after the flood, Nimrod and Cush, and then the Tower of Babel. So it is a place of rebellion against God. Now, the city of Babylon would be built later. In fact, in the days of, of, of uh, Daniel, the Euphrates River, the, the city had been built up on both sides of the Euphrates, and the Euphrates ran right down the middle of the city. Okay, Babylon had its own source of water, fresh water. It could endure a siege for an untold amount of time. And so when the Persians attempted to besiege Babylon, King Belshazzar and the Babylonians were held up inside the city and they weren't concerned. That's why they had a great feast and a great party. And we know the story there from the book of Daniel. The handwriting came down on the wall and told Belshazzar that his time was up. And in one of the great military uh, exploits of human history, what the Persians did is they actually rerouted the Euphrates River. They rerouted it around the city and then climbed up under the walls through the riverbed and surprised the Persians in the middle, I mean, the Babylonians in the middle of the night. King Belshazzar was slain. So, an amazing thing. But Babylon built on the Euphrates. Babylon, the source of paganism that runs throughout all the world's religions today. Babylon, the source of rebellion against God, a place of great evil right there on the Euphrates River. So, I don't think we can lightly dismiss the relationship here, okay? For whatever reason, the Euphrates River is a place or is associated with rebellion and a place of evil. doesn't mean it's not a profitable river that feeds the water and all of this, but it has a history. And despite all of the evil and rebellion associated with that place, it is only evil and rebellion that is restrained. It doesn't have unrestrained power. It's evil restrained for God's purposes. And we see that there's not only a year and a day or a month, but there's a day and an hour that's been prepared by God to unleash something from this Euphrates River. Is the Euphrates a secret doorway or a spiritual doorway to Tartarus, which houses uh, these fallen angels that sinned against God in Genesis chapter 6? Quite possibly. I wouldn't be dogmatic about that, but I think it's interesting how bound angels are only spoken of elsewhere in the Scriptures as relates to Genesis chapter 6. So with the unleashing of demons in the fifth trumpet, we now have an unleashing of fallen angels. Okay, We have a teaming up of Satan's forces, as we'll see here in a minute with this cavalry and the angels that left their first estate. In Genesis 6, it says here in verse 15, the four angels were loosed, which were prepared. Okay? It's a passive verb. These angels don't free themselves. They don't escape chains. They're loosed because they've been prepared. In other words, despite all the evil and rebellion, as we've said time and time again, the great lesson we learn from Revelation is that God governs it all. And I can't say it enough. Every Sunday this comes up. 
God governs it all. Evil at best is restrained for God's purposes. At its greatest level of power, it's, it's restrained and still used for God's purposes. That doesn't mean God is not a benevolent God. No one will be able to accuse God of not being benevolent when it's all said and done. And those that would accuse Him will be burning in the lake of fire for all eternity, gnawing their tongues and hating God because He is benevolent. Okay, If God was not benevolent, even evil wouldn't be judged. So this idea that the presence of evil means there's no benevolent God is foolishness. Because why then is evil judged? We see it judged all the time. We see the remnants of that judgment here on the planet today from the flood. And we see the law of reaping and sowing taking place every day, even in our lives. If there is no God because there's evil, then there would be no law of reaping and sowing. It wouldn't be there. Okay? Prepared. There is no dualism. There is no good versus evil that reigns supreme. There is no force, good, light and dark side, equal power as presented in the Star Wars stories. God governs. And He governs even with precision to a precise moment. These angels and their loosing were prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year to slay a third of mankind. This wasn't just appointed for the last days or an obscure period of future times as false religious prophecy often speaks about. You know, prophecies of Nostradamus and all of this stuff that people used to get all giddy about. Half of it never came true and half of it really wasn't what it was presented to be anyway. It was never precise. You know, it was never anything but general prophecies that could be fulfilled in a variety of ways. God's prophecies are precise and detailed. 48 details of Jesus' life were fulfilled when He was born, proving Him to be the Messiah. I had the great privilege this week of editing and redesigning a gospel tract for Jewish backpackers that Brother Dylan wrote. It's a great tract. And I needed to get together a file that we could print. I'm hoping and praying, y'all can help us pray for this, that Ricky can get them printed in Kathmandu so he can bring some back. So we can take a few to Israel and then have a stash here and a stash there. One in Hebrew, one in English. And I needed to put contact information for Ricky's email on there uh, to connect it directly with him and his work. So I just decided to take the opportunity to redesign it a bit and to reinforce what had already been said. And I did that by adding more scriptures and showing more places where specific detailed prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Not from the New Testament, but straight from the Old Testament. And then showing them to be fulfilled. And showing them to be recorded by Jewish authors in the New Testament. So, detailed prophecy was the key to making the point about Messiah. And it proves the Bible to be true. Here we have a detailed prophecy. Not just a year, but a month, a day, and an hour. The unleashing of these angels has been prepared for a precise moment. We need to remember, my friends, that God's schedule and God's timetable, is not, they're not general, okay? They're not flexible. They're not spontaneous. But God's ways are precise. When the Bible says God's ways are not our ways and His ways are higher than our ways, that's referring to the precision and the certainty 
of His ways. As opposed to us, we come up with these plans and we have schedules and we never seem to be able to abide by them. They change. We're flex- Flexibility is a good thing in our fallen human state. Spontaneity is a good thing. I would challenge you all to be more flexible and spontaneous. But when it comes to God's plan and purpose for the ages, He is precise. Revelation is not a grouping of mystic symbolism or a rehashing of history or general events repeatedly, retold. You know, the trumpets are not the seal judgments retold and the vials are not the trumpets retold. It is the unveiling of specifics and certainties on God's detailed schedule. Now, we've all already talked about in here that with relationship to the Jews, God had a detailed, precise schedule. We looked at Daniel's 70 weeks and how the first 69 weeks, the Bible said, after those 69 weeks of years, two things would happen. Messiah would be cut off and the city would be destroyed. And when we went and looked at the, the, the weeks and the, and, and the solar years and the calendar years, we discovered that just as God prophesied through Daniel, it was precisely fulfilled. In fact, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, um, uh, A.D. 30. From the, ushering, from, the, from, the, from the commandment to start building again the city of Jerusalem until that moment was 483 solar years, 69 weeks, from the issuing of the commandment to Messiah the Prince. Messiah the Prince was when the people recognized Him rolling into the city. Precise. Okay, And then we discovered Jesus died or was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. And the commandment of the Persian king in Nehemiah's day was on the 14th of Nisan. Messiah was cut off precisely 483 calendar years later. And so we can understand that 70th week. There's a gap between the 69th and the 70th. We can understand that 70th week to be precise as well in terms of the period of God's judgment on Israel. Seven years. God's schedule is detailed and detailed prophecy abounds throughout. This is yet another example. Jesus, when He spoke of God's knowledge concerning the end times, spoke of precision. In Mark chapter 13, He has these words to say. Mark chapter 13, verse 32, He says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the thing is. That's the coming of Christ for His church. It's not only prepared for a day, but for a specific hour. And we're told here that no one knows the hour but the Father. Now, when Jesus said, not the Son, that doesn't mean He's not God. That's what the Muslims will often point to this verse and say that's proof text that Jesus was just a man. No, Jesus was speaking in His humanity. Just as He spoke when He said, My Father who is greater than I. Jesus the man served a God greater than Him. Jesus the man had not the knowledge of something that only God could have. But Jesus the Son of God in communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, would have understanding of these things. Okay, Jesus, when He became a man, okay, purposely and voluntarily restrained what His deity gave Him so that He could come. And He stayed faithful to that Okay, in many ways. This doesn't speak against the omniscience of Christ because this same Jesus also said in John chapter 3 that... um, 
Um, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is present tense at that moment in heaven. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He claimed to be in heaven at the moment he was speaking to Nicodemus. But God's prophecies are precise, and even Jesus spoke of the days and the hours with regard to end times events. It's coming, my friends. We are in the days, but we're in the days waiting for the hours. And soon those hours will be here. The hour Christ comes. Did I say something wrong? No, that, I was, that verse you just gave, I was looking for that verse the other day. Okay. When that discussion about that heaven was Okay, I thought maybe I misspoke. Please, no, no. please point we it out. I'm trying to figure that out. And when you said that, it, I realized that was the verse I was looking for. Okay. I just want to make sure I didn't misspeak. Um, so these fallen angels and their loosings are prepared for a precise time just as Jonah's great fish was prepared for a precise moment. You know, God prepared a fish to swallow up Jonah at a specific time. That specific time was when the men cast him into that ocean. Okay, And that great fish swallowed up Jonah. That fish was prepared to effect divine discipline on the prophet. Here... We have four angels loosed from the Euphrates prepared not to effect divine discipline unto betterment as we see with Jonah, but to effect divine judgment unto destruction. Prepared for a day, a month, I mean a year, a month, a day, and an hour. That is a powerful statement. And what are they prepared to do? Or why are they prepared? What are they prepared for? To slay or to kill a third part of men. Man, that's, in, that's just amazing. Yes. yes. Um, I think in, in relation to God's hand in these things, I find it interesting that this is Satan's army. These are evil creatures that are unleashed, but they can, even though they kill a third of man, that's where it stops. That if it were Satan, if it were up to him, would he not wipe out just however many he decides to do? But God unleashes them to kill a third of mankind, and that's it. You're done. That's right. You kill them, and you're done. I say so. Mm -hmm. That's it. And same we'll see with the Jewish people in Revelation. Satan will go after them with a vengeance. But God, just like He prepared. This unleashing has also prepared a place for Israel to find refuge in the desert during that time. And Satan will come after them like a flood and the earth will swallow it up and God will preserve His people. Because if it was up to Satan, Antichrist would wipe out every single last Jew on the planet. Just like many people today in the Middle East and in our American government, white people hate the Jewish people and would like to see every one of them erased. It won't happen. The fact that they exist even today, despite history's attempts to eradicate them. I was reading a, an article in Israel My Glory magazine that just came out about the history of Jerusalem. Going back prior to World War I and some of the invasions of the Turks and things like that. And there have been multiple attempts to wrest Jerusalem from the hands of the Jews and to eradicate their presence there. It's never happened. Another great proof, the existence of the Israeli or the Jewish people of the truth of the Scriptures. 
Nations have come and gone for years. Peoples have come and gone. Many peoples are extinct, but not the Jewish people. So we have this releasing to slay a third part of men, this, these fallen angels, verses um, 14 and 15. Now let's uh, go to the next point, verse 16 through 19. We see a fiery cavalry. Okay? Verse 16, immediately after it says four angels are loosed, John says, and the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. And I heard the number of them. So John sees these four angels unloosed and the next thing he sees is an army of 200,000 thousand. That number is 200 million horsemen. And he heard the number of them. Okay? So... These angels are commanders of a supernatural cavalry that are sent into the world to slay a third part of men. Who are these horsemen? Well, it's only four angels released from the Euphrates. Is it possible that it was only four angels involved in Genesis chapter 6? I guess so. Is it possible that these are just a few of what's bound there? Probably so. But here we have angels released to command an army. Where does the army come from? Where does this army of 200 million people come from? Some have looked at this and said this is an army of the Orient. That what John is about to describe is modern warfare and these angels command the Chinese army, which is, it's even said today they could field an army of 200 million men. I don't believe this is the case at all. I think we have a supernatural army here just like we do with the fifth seal. Let's go back to Revelation 12. Remember how I said that with the locust army, the demons, we have an aftermath of the war in heaven. Satan is finally kicked out of heaven and he's cast to the earth and he's angry. So what does he do? He goes and opens that bottomless pit and unleashes the demons on mankind. Obviously in an attempt to destroy Israel as well. But they can't touch the seal of God. Okay, But we learn something else about the war in heaven. Looking at Revelation 12. John sees this, and the, these personages we learn about in chapter 12 are kind of a backdrop to the tribulation. When we get there, you'll see it's a parenthesis where we see some of the major characters during the period. But John sees this dragon, which is Satan, and it says in verse 4, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be devoured to deliver. And then it talks about the Christ child and Israel being spared. And then it tells us in verse 9 that the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. And he was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So this third part of heaven was his angels. Fallen angels from heaven. Not ones bound in the abyss associated with Genesis 6, but those that rebelled with Satan, they're all cast out of heaven. Uh, the stars are cast to the earth, as is Satan by Michael and his archangels. That is the war in heaven. The aftermath of that is that Satan opens the bottomless pit and unleashes the demons. And I believe another or a secondary aftermath of that is these four angels from the Euphrates now have an army to command. And that's the third part of heaven. Okay, these 200 million 
horsemen, I believe, are the third of heaven cast out with Satan. And we also have this aftermath of the war in heaven. So if 200 million horsemen is a third of the heavenly host, then perhaps God's heavenly host is as many as 600 million angels. Can you imagine that? It says in Revelation chapter 5, 11, the throne room of God, we, we looked at this. John said he heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the, the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. What's 10,000 times 10,000? Daddy, can you spit that out? <laughs> it's like... Uh, A billion, okay. Okay, a billion exceeds 200 million, but yet that number don't, doesn't only include the angels, it includes the saints and everyone else. So what an amazing picture of the size of the heavenly host. And we humans think we're so important. We think we're so at the top of the evolutionary tree, per se. I believe this 200, these 200 million horsemen are a third of the stars put under the command of Tartarus's generals, an angelic cavalry, okay, a fiery cavalry. Praise God that those who believe in Jesus Christ are delivered from the wrath to come. It says here, as we read on in chapter 9, John saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of hyacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three, that is the fire, smoke, and brimstone, was the third part of men killed. By the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. So we have horsemen, these fallen angels riding these fiery steeds. These horsemen have breastplates of fire. They are like hasinth. Hasinth is a transparent red variety of what's called a zircon stone. It's a very orangish red, beautiful stone. And of course, brimstone is what? Sulfur. Brimstone is the burning stone that produces the sulfurous smell. So literally, these horsemen have breastplates, breastplates with the heat, the color, and the smell of hell. And it's the heat, the color, and the smell of hell that slays a third part of men. This is not modern warfare. Modern warfare would have been an extremely... Strange thing for John to see. And he could have described it in a variety of ways. But I can't think of something that breathes the smell, the fire, and the color of literal hell as these do. Issuing from their mouths and tails on these horses like a serpent that do bite. This is a composite creature. Just like the locust, just like the cherubim. Not a unique beauty not a unique composite beauty as in God's heavenly creatures, but a dreadful horror in terms of Satan's composite minions. 
Horses had heads of lions that breathed fire and tails with serpent heads that bite. By these were a third of men killed. Now we know back in the chapter 6 with the fourth seal judgment, which was tragic death, a fourth of the world was killed. So if you assume a 7 billion population like we have today, the fourth seal resulted in the death of 1.75 billion people. Not in a specific area, but tragic death that will reign supreme in those days. Now you have this fiery cavalry that goes forth to kill a third of what is left. That would be another 1.75 billion. So with these two judgments alone, you have a half of the world's population purged. Three and a half billion people. We can't even imagine. We can't even imagine. People scoff Armageddon and they speak of it in light terms and they, 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 they lightly dismiss great truths about God and His judgment. It will be a day of awakening. And I'm sad to say and to think that it will be a day of awakening for many in the church this morning. With this seal, this fiery cavalry, we have a great purging. Why this great purging? Purging the earth, preparing it for the millennial kingdom. You know what's not going to be a problem in the millennial kingdom, my friends? Overpopulation. Ain't going to be a problem. It's not going to be a problem. God's kingdom, Jesus' rule and reign uh, from Jerusalem over all the nations of the earth, the saints living and reigning from the new Jerusalem, overpopulation and crowdedness won't be a problem. No longer will it, will it be crowded. No longer will we be unable to go to places and find solitude like we are today. There's a great purging. A great purging says that these men are killed by the fire, smoke, and brimstone that come from the mouth of these fiery steeds. The tails of these steeds inflict great hurt. It's literally the heat, the smell, and the color of hell that reaps its destruction here. And no piece of modern warfare can even approach the heat of hell. In chapter 11... Or in Psalm 11, verse 6, we learn a very sobering truth that I think we see fulfilled here. I'll just turn there real quickly. Psalm 11, verse 6 says, Upon the wicked. Well, let's look at verse 5. This is something that doesn't fit very well with modern day churchianity. The Lord trieth the righteous. But the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Does this say that the sins of the wicked, his soul hateth? No. The wicked and the him that loveth violence, God's soul hates. God does hate. It's a righteous hatred. And the hatred is not just for the sin, it's for the sinner and the wicked. Now keep in mind, God's hatred is not like ours. We can't even compare it. Our hatred is rooted in selfishness. It's rooted in emotion. It's rooted in knee-jerk feelings and attitudes. God doesn't like that. His hatred is righteous. It's rooted in truth. And it's no respecter of persons. Upon the wicked, verse 6, He shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. That's exactly what the sixth trumpet judgment is. It is raining of snares, fire, and brimstone, a horrible tempest. This is a prophecy. 
And it's fulfilled here in Revelation ultimately. This is a supernatural army. This shall be the portion of their cup. So this raining of fire and brimstone, it is the portion of the wicked's cup. Just desserts. We can make excuses all day long about why mankind doesn't deserve this or doesn't deserve that. In fact, when I've gone to college campuses to preach the gospel and I've been with other brothers, one statement that riles people up more than anything, the word repent, repent really riles people up, but when you tell people we deserve hell, they can't handle it. They can't handle it. They come unglued. But these things are the portion of the wicked's cup. And you know what? All are born wicked. The wicked are estranged from the womb, it says. Speaking lies as soon as they be born. David spoke about being conceived in iniquity. And the portion of our cup, what we deserve, is a fiery tempest from the Lord and destruction. But you know what? Praise God. Let's look at Psalm 16.5. This snare, this tempest, this fire and brimstone that we see here with this judgment is the portion of the wicked's cup. And we all deserve death. But in Psalm 16.5 it says, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Those that humble themselves before God and repent of their sins and fall upon Jesus Christ no longer is judgment their portion, but the Lord is their portion. Will you trade fiery tempest, the portion of a cup of fiery tempest, for the portion of a cup of Jesus Christ Himself? Therein, my friends, is the great escape. Let us be those that say, the Lord is my portion of my inheritance of my cup. Not seeking inheritance here on earth, but being satisfied in Him and what He has provided. So despite all of these terrible things, there is escape. There is a merciful God who offers up Himself as a portion, as a refuge from the blasting and the heat. Jesus Christ can save you to God. He's the only one that can save you from God and from these terrible supernatural armies that are prepared for a year, a month, a day, and an hour to wreak judgment. Now I believe, as I've said, this is a supernatural army and perhaps it's invisible to the naked eye. It's probably not something that you will see marching down the street. Just like the demons. You know, you don't see demons. Demons do make themselves visible. You do see these devils from time to time. From time to time they do make themselves visible uh, according to their will uh, with people that worship them and in various circumstances around the earth. We don't see that as much here because Satan doesn't need to intimidate here. He's deceived everybody into believing he doesn't even exist. So why waste the power and the energy to reveal yourself when you don't need to? But I believe these are possibly invisible and they are armies that will just wreak havoc and people will be dying and from the naked eye. There will be no explanation whatsoever. Um, these supernatural armies that are invisible to the naked eye are not unknown in Scripture. We see this, mainly angelic armies. I don't want to really get into this uh, too much. Um, let's wait till next week and we'll talk about some of these um, supernatural armies. There's some neat stories in 2 Kings 
the book of Judges, um, and uh, some things that we learn about supernatural armies working behind human governments and human armies, we learn about in the book of Daniel. So we'll get to that next week. There's no reason to rush, and we can get done a little bit early today. And then the end of the chapter, the last two verses, it kind of shifts back and focuses on all of the trumpet judgment. Despite all of these plagues, we see an astounding picture of human depravity. An astounding picture of human depravity. So we'll get through this uh, on God's timetable. Following Revelation 9, we go into a parenthesis, Revelation 10, that has to do with Jesus' public reading of the title deed of the earth and claiming what is His. Then we get a little background at the beginning of Revelation 11 about the three and a half year ministry of the two witnesses. And then the last few verses of chapter 11 coincides with the end of the trumpet judgment. The, second, the, set, the sixth trumpet, the second woe, starts with the loosing of these angels and it ends with a great earthquake in Jerusalem immediately following the resurrection of these saints who are caught up to heaven in a rapture of their own, those two witnesses. So I'm excited. Revelation 7 is a very interesting chapter and things that will have to be in existence for that to happen. We see efforts being made toward that even today. I'm really excited. One of those is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And I'm excited with Ricky and I to go and try to see some of these artifacts and stuff that have already been made. Because the Jews will have another temple. It's there in Jerusalem and the door will be opened. And uh, it will happen. All right. I pray that was a blessing this morning. Thanks for letting me sit down. I seem to preach better when I'm sitting down because I can relax. So. Yes. Hundred million. Yeah, because, uh, because you, you, you take the number of zeros and add the one to it. Okay. So, like so? And I was counting nine zeros in my head. Only eight zeros. That means ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands and thousands could easily be uh, four hundred million. Four hundred million. So Thank you for clarifying that. I, I, I can't visualize that stuff in my mind. I have to sit down with the calculator, and when you're using those numbers, you end up getting the E message, unless you got a really wide... I think you can do it. Remember, take the number of zeros and then multiply the beginning number, and that's how you can always get it right. Okay, okay, cool. So that would be eight zeros, which would be 100 million. Okay, cool, nice. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thank you. I think the iPhone, when you turn it sideways, you can deal with numbers that big. But you still have to count the zeros and figure out what that means.